John Cryer, and this is the Undisclosed Addendum. This is our first episode of our four-part series on the HBO documentary The Case Against Adnan Syed, which uh, actually aired its first episode on Sunday night. But on Friday night, uh, we got some big news. The Maryland Court of Appeals has reinstated Adnan's conviction. And, of course, this is a, a huge legal setback for Adnan and his team. And uh, we'll absolutely be talking to Colin and Susan about it later in the show. But we have a very special guest, and I wanted to get to her right away. Uh, of course, we have our usual suspects. We've got Colin Miller, uh, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, who blogs at Evidence Prof Blog. And we've also got Susan Simpson, uh, an associate of the Volkov Law Group and also the host of the 45th. But our guest today is uh, Krista Remmers, who is uh, formerly known as Krista Myers. She was featured in the documentary and was part of the 1999 graduating class at Woodlawn High School. She was friends with Hay and continues to be friends with Adnan today. And we are so grateful to have her with us. Hey there, Krista. Hey, John. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I have to ask. So was Sunday night when the first episode aired the first time you've actually seen the documentary? No, actually, I did a Q&A panel in New York on Friday night uh, that Susan was at, and I requested to see the documentary before then because I did not want to be ugly crying in a room full of strangers. <laughs> so I was able to see it actually before uh, it aired on TV. So I, I have to ask, how does it feel having slices of your life and your friends and all of that portrayed in something like this documentary? Uh, it was a hard pill to swallow at first because you always wonder, like, are they going to make it to Hollywoodish? Like, what's going to happen? But I feel like Amy Dar uh, Berg and her team did an excellent job um, just portraying everything. They brought Hay to life. Um, they brought Adnan more to life than he already was um, and helped focus on, like, the way things were back in 1999, just not for them, but for all of us. So I think they did a really good job of that. Yeah, I thought it evoked, uh, you know, the sort of swirl of high school emotions really well. And I've only seen the first episode, so I don't know where it goes from here. But do you feel like there are any misconceptions that people have uh, that have ever made you say, oh, God, I really would love to say this? You know, has anything jumped out at you about that? Not necessarily. Um, I think that because so many people were involved, you know, they brought Aisha and they brought Laura and, you know, they brought Debbie in. So it gave us um, kind of all of us the idea of what it was like in high school to be able to portray to everyone else. So I feel like they did a good job not just getting one side or two sides, but kind of from everybody that was at the center of the circle. Um, so I think they did an excellent job with that. I don't really have anything that I necessarily like wish I could have said, but it's hard to know what else Amy's going to air because originally... I think I interviewed with her for like three hours and then we've talked since then a time or two. So um, you never know what's going to come out in the other three episodes. And you were interviewed for Serial, correct? I was. Got it. And how did you feel uh, after Serial came out? Uh, Serial was a different sort of experience for me because going into it, when I was originally interviewed by Sarah, I feel like I probably asked her more questions than she asked me because at that point in time, none of us really had any idea what was said, who testified to what, why Adnan was even convicted in the first place, because 
there was not social media at the time. There wasn't a whole lot of news coverage. So she answered a lot of questions for me. So every episode that came out, it ended up being something that I didn't know before. Uh, so there was more of a shock value, I guess, with Serial. But now that we've kind of lived in everything for the last four or five years and bringing everything up again, um, it's getting more in tune with like understanding how we got here and the injustices that have been done. Yeah, what I, I thought the documentary conveyed really well was that everybody was operating on an imperfect set of information. You know, nobody nobody knew what else was going on elsewhere. Like nobody necessarily read into the fact that uh, Hay had been missing for a couple of days when you guys had your party, you know, when you had that uh, your 18th birthday party, uh, you know, that it didn't immediately strike everybody's wrong that she wasn't there until it was over. Exactly. We just thought, OK, maybe she's going to show up. She'll be a little bit late. She was going to come from work anyway. You know, so we didn't realize until then that, hey, maybe something really is wrong here. Yeah. And I, I have to figure that a lot of the time in movies, the way movies are portrayed, they they sort of give the audience an omniscience. You know, the audience knows everything. But in real life, people just don't have all of the information, you know, and, and it just it unfolds very, very slowly. Obviously, we have this awful feeling of foreboding, but nobody really uh, accepted that Hay might have been killed until her body was found because she might have traveled. You know, she might have uh, have left town for some reason. Exactly. And I also kind of got the sense that because none of the adults seem to have been taking it that seriously. None of the adults were freaking out. It seems like the kids, the, you know, high school students were feeding off of that. Right. And we, we were a little bit like, we're in, we were in that weird, like 17, 18, like we thought we were adults. So maybe our parents have, didn't talk to us as much as they would have had we been 13 or 14. So a lot of times our parents didn't really get involved other than when we came to them and said, hey, this is really worrying us at this point. Um, so it was, it was a strange situation just with that added layer. Another thing I thought the show did beautifully was it really brought Hay uh, to the forefront. And, you know, I understand that the use of her diary was very controversial. And uh, obviously it had been introduced by the state uh, as state's evidence. So it, it is technically, you know, the property of the public. But, you know, I can understand why people would be uncomfortable with uh, somebody's personal thoughts. But as a viewer, I found myself incredibly grateful because so often in these documentaries, the victim gets short shrift. You know, they're they're gone. Do you feel like it really it showed parts of hay that were almost impossible to show any other way? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I know it's it is controversial and people are like, oh, those were her personal thoughts. But the way I've always looked at it is if if it wasn't in her diary, it wasn't how she felt because she was so good at documenting her feelings and emotions and what she was going through. And without her family participating, um, we had a really hard time like knowing what that side of her life was like because so many of us were not involved with her home life. So her diary was really her only and best way for anybody to really understand where she was mentally um, and what she was going through. And not to treat a diary like a contract, it's not. But even as they show in the opening, like she did not say, don't, do not continue, do not read. She said, don't read if you're going to be upset about what you find. She was putting herself out there in the pages, at least in her own words, and warning others not to continue if they thought they'd be upset with what she said. She's not telling them, back off. I also found it interesting that apparently her younger brother read the diary very quickly after she uh, yeah. uh, disappeared. Well, you know he was uh, reading it before then, too. <laughs> well, I, I, hey, as a, as a younger brother with an older sister, obviously, I, I'm sure I put my nose where it didn't belong uh, in, in many respects. But that struck me that uh, he, for whatever reason, felt that that was OK. 
Um, another, actually, in terms of how you, you mentioned how the adults were handling things, I wanted to bring up uh, Hope Schaub, who came off very, I thought it was very interesting, the position she, I guess, put herself in, um, in terms of uh, basically working with or for the police in that situation. And I was wondering, Krista, did you have any interactions with her back in the day? Um, only, I mean, yes, at some points I did, but I didn't, I was not one of her students. Um, and when I was a senior in high school, I only went to school for two classes. So I, by 1045, I was out of there. So I probably had less interaction with her than some of the other students did. But she um, very much would approach us, especially during this time, just to make sure everybody was OK. You know, how were they doing? Um, and I don't remember if it was Hope specifically, but some of the teachers made some comments that were really upsetting to those of us that knew both handed non as far as like why this killing happened. Um, and I feel like looking back now, it was kind of inappropriate for the police or for her to get involved in that side, because this was an adult that we were trusting. You know, we're supposed to be able to go to them um, to confide in. And that was kind of it almost turned on people and used against us if we did talk to her about anything. So that was a little upsetting to hear, I guess, that it was being used in that manner. Can I ask what were the kind of things that you heard that were hurtful? Um, and, and like I said, I don't remember exactly which teacher said it, or even if I did, I honestly I probably would not say it out loud. But um, comments that would come across like this was an honor killing, you know, in his religion, uh, this is perceived as OK. Like she scorned him, so he hurt her. Um, and it was stuff like that where we just like that's not who Adnan was at all. And it. It just makes people seem a little more racist, obviously, and and the whole case a little bit more biased because at that point, like people are looking at it that just because he's Muslim, he must be guilty. So this would be after his arrest at this point. Uh, but before his arrest, do you recall if there was any anything going around the school at that point? Nope. Just just afterwards. Before that, there was no mention of anything like that at all. So uh, just out of curiosity, was Hope Schaub, when she made up those questions, supposedly, that she gave to Debbie, was that after Adon was arrested or before? You know what? I am not really 100 percent sure, but I believe that it was before Adnan was arrested, because um, at least how I took it in the documentary was that they were trying to locate her and what happened to her, which is why those questions were even being brought up. It was before. It was around the 1st of February. Yeah. That is striking, uh, just because, you know, at that point, uh, the only person he was a suspect to was should have been just the police. But I guess the police were were bringing up questions with uh, lay people. Right. I think they at that point it was still a missing persons case because they had not yet found her body. So they were just trying to figure out where she might be. creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. 
You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds of thousands of hours a year. It's your business, just better with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with a promo code undisclosed. Payment is flexible and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to HoneyBook.com and use the promo code UNDISCLOSED for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com, promo code UNDISCLOSED. Susan and Colin, I was curious, is this the kind of police tactic that I mean, one would understand they're beating the bushes, you know, they're out there, they're saying, hey, if you, you know, here's pictures, here's, you know, if you hear something, tell us, you know, Um, but this seems uh, sort of above and beyond for the police. Yeah, especially to use a trusted figure like a teacher as like a deputy investigator raises all kinds of problems. Is that typical? Uh, Maybe in Baltimore. I I don't know. I obviously don't work on many missing person cases. I don't want to say it's ever inappropriate for the police to say, hey, could you ask around about this? Um, but certainly the degree to which it happened here and the, you know, respective positions they had, the authority she had over these students, um, to me, crosses the line for sure. Krista, there was another part of the episode about Debbie. And were you particularly uh, close with Debbie? Um, I mean, we would. I guess, hang out in the same circles sometimes, but she's not somebody that I hung out in on an individual level, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. I mean, one thing that always struck me about when people characterize teenagers is they act like there's these uh, ironclad groups. They fail to understand that it's all fluid. These are all different people floating in a sea of teenagerness. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes they get closer and sometimes they pull apart. And there's there's very few things that are you know walled off in a, in a very specific way. But I have to say, I was very surprised um, at the part of the show that uh, revealed that because I had heard that uh, Debbie had a conversation with Don uh, where she uh, claimed to be sort of, I guess, uh, interrogating him to some respect uh, after Hayes' disappearance. But uh, that there was some sort of a romantic flirtation between them uh, was very surprising to me. Um, Did you have any inkling of that back in the day? I had no idea. And and I'll be honest with you, Debbie was always a very private person when it came to that sort of thing. And she was always very respectful. So I'll give her that as far as um, she'd never let people cross the line that that she didn't want to, for example. So um, I would not be surprised if she didn't tell anybody else until this came up. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's actually been something floating around the the internet that uh, part of the police report at one point mentioned that Don was uh, disliked by Hayes' uh, female friends, um, but also that he may have assaulted Debbie. Was that anything that you had heard about? No, not until um, people started looking through the police reports related to serial, and I thought, well, that's a weird note um, because it just depends it's on weird. when. <laughs> yeah, it just depends on when they interviewed. The only the only way for me to reconcile that is if they did an interview with Debbie after spring break when she's saying that this happened, if she said Don hit on me and they interpreted it as Don hit me, then I could see how that could turn into assaulted inadvertently. But no, I had never heard anything like that. We don't Got know it. what came from Debbie though. Like what if Debbie did talk to someone like a teacher, right? What if she told hope shop about it. Or what if it was just a rumor? You know, it could have just been a, a rumor that had no actual basis in fact. 
Yeah, well, Debbie wasn't entirely subtle about it, so I could see how a rumor could start because she was like calling him Donnie, talking about seven hour long phone marathons. So, I mean, we could be even before we knew what had happened, we could kind of do the math there and wondered about it. I'm sure back then people who heard her talk like that would wonder. And there's the other part of the note, too, which, you know, says that the other friends don't like him. So we don't know also the source of that information. So, I mean, Crystal, like, for instance, you didn't share that information, right? Are you aware of any of your friends saying anything like that? No, no. I mean, I feel like the whole relationship was so new. I mean, they had been dating a little over a month, maybe hanging out. Like two Um, weeks. Oh, well, hanging out. Right. And they didn't really seriously start dating, I think, till the end of December or New Year's. So there wasn't a whole lot of us that had even met him. And I actually didn't meet Don until the trial um, because he and I testified on the same day. So I'm not sure where that would have come from because I don't think he I know he met Aisha and I know he had met Debbie, but I don't know that he met anyone else. I wanted to get to uh, there's a a police officer featured in the documentary, Detective Massey. And I had a a couple of questions about that. Obviously, uh, you know, it felt odd to me that the only policeman to actually come forward and do an interview is the, you know, probably the least involved policeman in the investigation. He only got two of the uh, phone calls. Uh, Supposedly, he got two of the anonymous phone calls. And he's actually been a figure of some controversy in the Baltimore uh, Police Department of late. Uh, And actually, Colin, uh, I was reading that you had to some very specific questions about those two anonymous, supposedly anonymous phone calls. Um, Did you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, well, we touched upon this a bit in the episode, but, you know, the question we always had with those anonymous calls is that he says the caller was an Asian male. And the question was, is that South Asian covering areas like Pakistan or is it East Asian covering areas like Korea? And, you know, in the documentary, he's quite clear this was a voice that sounded Korean or at least you would imagine East Asian. And, you know, the weird thing about that is it talks about this individual, Basar Ali, which is Yasser Ali, Adnan's friend from the mosque and what Adnan had told him. And we're not aware, at least as far as we know, of anyone outside of Hayes' family who has Korean roots who would know both Adnan and Yasser Ali. And so the question is, you know, is this a legitimate call? Is Massey simply messing up his memory of the accent of the speaker? What exactly do we take away from this memo that he's prepared? But it's also an incredibly convenient call for the police because this is supposedly the call that set them off on Adnan, and it completely uh, ignores that there was also a Crime Stoppers tip around exactly the same time um, that would have been a much more likely reason for them to go uh, in the direction of Adnan. Part of the reason that uh, Detective Massey is uh, controversial uh, is because supposedly he, I believe he was convicted of um, forging overtime uh, in his job, that he was claiming overtime when he was actually at home. Uh, and that has called many of his convictions uh, that where he worked as a police officer into question. I believe uh, there's a couple of trials that where the verdicts have been either thrown out or are being reexamined as we speak. Is that true, Colin? Yeah, it is. And it's led to this broader controversy, too, which is this relates to his personnel records, because those records go to this overtime scandal where he basically cheated to get extra money. And there's been this question where state of Maryland is trying to say those are personnel records, they're not accessible to the public, and they can't be used. And yet you have individuals saying, well, look, this has already established at least two wrongful murder convictions, and the public should have access to these documents. And John, you know, you in California, this is something 
that's also being grappled with out in California. And recently they have made these personal records public. And the question is, are they going to do the same in Maryland? If they do, you can imagine a slew of wrongful convictions being brought to light based upon those records being made public. And keep in mind, this overtime fraud that Massey was involved in was very widespread. It was a very large chunk of the police force. I mean, it was not something like he did alone on the side. There was a pretty well-established pattern of many officers engaging in it. Now, you, so you guys saw the interview. What were your impressions of him? I mean, it's all he almost isn't hiding it, if you know what I mean. Like, he, he's being pretty blunt. Um, but there was sort of like a self-awareness there. Maybe I was reading too much into it. I I take anything he says with a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay, we'll just lay it on the table. <laughs> um, well, you pointed out, Colin, that just socially, it's very unlikely, being that it seemed as though Hayes' family was very, very private uh, and didn't often have uh, people in Hayes' social group over to uh, their home, that it made it very unlikely that those two groups would have commingled. Um, And Chris, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. Did you feel like that there could possibly be overlap between people who who were in the Asian community and a non-Muslim community? I don't think there's any chance at all, actually. I mean, we we never had none of our friends us ever went to Adnan's house, any the girls anyway, and none of us ever really went to Hayes' house either. So if we were hanging out with them, it would have been at one of um, our houses, I guess, not theirs. So I, the odds of them crossing paths in a way that would uh, associate uh, the two are very, very, that's a, I mean, it's a long shot. Well, also, it's very intimate information. You know, uh, this is not the kind of thing that people just spout, you know, when they're just hanging out with their friends. You know, it sounds like this is very important private information that would have had to have been communicated to whoever this anonymous caller was. And yes, I was not part of the Woodlawn crew. He was over like in Ellicott City. So he had a different friend group in general. Like he was Yasser did not connect with the rest of Anon's friends at Woodlawn, let alone like Hayes community. So Krista, you've actually interacted with a lot of the police involved in this case. I mean, uh, and what has your impression been of them? I mean, um, the only two that I've really interacted with, I guess, on a face-to-face basis were Ritz and McGilligary. And they came to my place of employment the day after Adnan was arrested and interrogated me for, I'd say, about an hour and a half. Um, And it was very... (laughs) I mean, I just remember being very intimidated, like it was just me. They pulled me into an empty office and were just honed in on questions regarding phone records and what I knew about Adnan and hey, Um, it was just very intimidating for me. I wasn't given the option to like, do you want anybody here with you? Um, It was a we're on our way to your office to ask you some questions. So it, it was weird, to say the least. But that was the only interaction I had other than. Um, the night that Adnan called the police precinct to find out what was going on as far as uh, when they found Hayes' body. And that woman on the phone was really nice, but I don't know who that was. But that was the the night that uh, they had found Hayes' body and, and you were the person who had to inform Adnan of that. Correct. And when we were together, because I went where he was uh, to try and just kind of make sure he was OK, he called the police uh, precinct and actually started crying and he got really emotional. So I took the phone from him and talked to the lady on the other end of the line to try and explain why we were calling and the information that we wanted to know. So when Ritz and McGillibury uh, interviewed you, was that after Adnan had been arrested or before? It was the day after he was arrested. Yeah, the first. So that's interesting. So they had already felt like they had enough uh, for a- an arrest before they spoke to you. I would assume. And all I, I can specifically remember what they were honed in on was the 
538 phone call that he made to me that was two seconds and they wanted to know what exactly he said and what that conversation was about. And it was a hang up on my machine because I ended up producing phone records to say, hey, I used to get in trouble for dialing star 69 at that point because we didn't have caller ID. And right after that phone call, I had missed it and dialed star 69 and it was a nonce number and tried to call him back and didn't reach him. So they were like specifically honed in on that, thinking that I would have some sort of information that would be better for their case. Hmm. And notice and notice that call does not come up in their interview the night before with Jay. Because they didn't know what it was, so Jay couldn't tell them what it was. Uh, yeah, that, well, I did want to get into, uh, and we'll be getting into later because the um, court's opinion in the Court of Appeals case, the concurrence goes into great detail in terms of why they feel the uh, totality of the evidence would have made it impossible for uh, Adnan to have won an acquittal based on the, uh, the alibi evidence. <laughs> So on Friday, obviously, a lot of us were very excited and anticipating uh, the documentary premiering on Sunday. Um, but obviously, we got this news that the uh, a decision had come in. Uh, I got it over social media. I don't know how uh, I don't know how you guys got it, but it was a bit of a gut punch for me personally um, because the the decision so completely surprised me. But it seemed, of course, the headline was that Adnan's uh, conviction had been reinstated. But uh, but it wasn't clear to me the route that they took to get that because it seems a bit convoluted. And Colin, I wanted to go into that with you in a little more detail. So obviously, all of the judges, except for one, felt that clearly Christina Gutierrez had been deficient in her defense of Adnan, but they also felt that uh, they hadn't proved prejudice, that uh, Adnan would have still lost the case even if she had done that. Um, Is that a correct characterization? Right, exactly. Six of the seven justices find it's deficient performance. She should have contacted Asia McLean. She didn't, so she failed Adnan on that front. One justice, Justice Watts, finds it wasn't deficient performance. And then the three justice majority joined with Watts to make four finds even if she had contacted her and presented her as an alibi witness that wasn't going to make a difference to the jury because they agree with Judge Welch's original opinion, which is that the crux of the state's case is not the murder itself. It's sort of this seven o'clock hour with the Lincoln Park pings, Jay's story about burying the body in Lincoln Park, Jen testifying, I called it non cell phone and had this conversation in the seven o'clock hour. So what they say is it's not prejudicial on those grounds. Now, of course, what they acknowledge is Judge Welch found it was also ineffective assistance to not use the AT&T disclaimer about incoming calls being unreliable for location status, but they say that issue was waived. And so even though they don't address the merits of that argument, they're basically saying we reject this alibi claim because the crux of the state's case is the Lincoln Park pings. We recognize that Judge Welch found that those were undermined if we had introduction of the disclaimer, but we procedurally can't consider that issue now. But, okay, explain that to me, because the idea was that he somehow should have brought that up a long time ago, but if he didn't know, how was he supposed to do that? Right, which is the argument by the defense. And so we have this case, Curtis versus State, by the Court of Appeals in Maryland. And what that says is, if you have a claim involving a fundamental right, such as the right to the effective assistance of counsel... A defendant has to have knowing and intelligent waiver of that claim. 
and Judge Welch finds Adnan didn't. He hadn't finished high school at the time he's arrested. This is a complicated issue, and therefore I'm allowed to hear this claim. What the Court of Appeals of Maryland finds is that only applies if this is the very first time you're making that claim. So, for instance, in his first petition, Adnan had made a Brady claim, and now for the first time is bringing an ineffective assistance claim, Curtis would apply and Adnan could bring this claim. But what they find is because in his first petition, Adnan claimed ineffective assistance for other reasons, such as the alibi claim, but not based upon the AT&T disclaimer, that's not covered by Curtis. And therefore, this whole waiver idea doesn't apply. And this cell tower claim is waived. So that's horrifying enough. But here's the horrifying implication even more so. Um, it applies to Brady, too, presumably. So say you find evidence that the police withheld something and bring a claim and lose. If you later find evidence the police actually fabricated all the evidence and framed you for it and withheld that, that theoretically is also now still barred. Yeah, it seems to set a really an impossible bar, uh, considering that cases are often very complicated and new evidence comes up often. Is this typical of many states or is this just a, a Maryland kink? I mean, look what happened in Georgia with Joey's case. We're still waiting on a ruling from the Supreme Court there. But Joey lost to the trial court level because he, the court found that even though the prosecution hid evidence under a fake case number and lied to the court and the judge about what happened, um, Joey had to find that in a year because he didn't. The state is essentially off the hook. Basically, if you, you're the prosecutor, if you can hide evidence for a year after the conviction, you're good to go. Now, I'm, I feel for a lot of reasons, I believe the Supreme Court of Georgia is not going to sustain that ruling, but you never know. And that's currently what the trial court found. So, yeah, Maryland's not alone in that. You know, I think we all felt uh, that uh, Justin Brown's arguments uh, about the waiver issue and all these things, you know, were compelling and that it would be very unlikely that the Court of Appeals would do exactly what they did. Uh, In fact, Colin, you mentioned that they did exactly the opposite of what you expected in this particular case. I will say that I, I... Justin and I had a conversation about it, and I was like freaking him out. So my fear was a little bit different, but I, I always felt pretty good that there was no way they could find no deficient performance. And that was what Theo argued again and again. And Theo's arguments actually did not prevail here because the the six to one they did not want to deal with his claim about the, um, this not being deficient because it is. It absolutely is. The case law is unambiguous. There's just no room around it. But there's the second wishy-washy step of Strickland, which is. You know, this whole, well, it's the same subject, but a whole different tangent about the problematic issue there with, you know, dividing up performance and prejudice. But the prejudice prong is fluffier and the case law wasn't quite as impossible to get around. And that is what they did. One thing that surprised me is in the concurrence uh, written by Judge Watts. Uh, she claimed that uh, if the prejudice prong wasn't satisfied, they don't even have to go into the, that they could even leave out the other prong. Uh, and I thought, well, that's that's odd that not meeting one prong would completely erase the other one. Well, that's it's judicial avoidance that often I mean, that's not an uncommon sort of doctrine. Um, whether it applies in this case is different, but judges don't want to hold things. They don't have to. So say there's like three issues before them and they can rule all of it on one. Often they'll decide the one issue and leave the two for another day. They also don't want to accidentally set precedent, I would imagine. Sometimes. Sometimes they they really want to set it and look out of the way to do it. Well, that was really interesting in this case. And I don't, again, I have no idea what's typical in these kind of decisions. But uh, obviously it was a 4-3 decision. There was uh, somebody wrote the opinion and somebody wrote a dissent. But then there was a concurrence 
with, uh, you know, a particular uh, hair splitting there. Um, Is that common, Colin? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And I think, you know, a lot of us did see that with Justice Watts and the question she asked. Yeah, she she has certain questions during the oral arguments. She sort of has a record of ruling against defendants. And so that this is sort of the, the squeaky wheel where you have a justice who thinks, you know, even though I'm in the majority, I want to speak separately and I want to highlight an issue that I think is important. And she clearly had a view of this case that was different from the six other justices, but she wanted to have in writing her take on why she thought this was a valid conviction. Uh, and I, I wanted to talk about it for a minute because she really took great pains to do something that I thought was actually kind of disturbing, which was she basically wanted to give Christina Gutierrez excuses for not using Asia McLean's alibi testimony. Um, so she went into great detail with uh, every single sign of possible fabrication that she found. And I actually I, I went through the document here um, because they all seemed like bullshit to me. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry for I mean, my, She bought uh, into all the crazy conspiracy theories. She bought into the exactly. whole one thing. Apparently, Justice Watts believes these cops were so stupid and ineffective that they had a witness tell them that the defendant in their murder case they want to solve tried to fabricate an alibi. But then they're so incompetent in their jobs, they failed to ever ask a question about it again, to even write notes that were consistent about it. So remember, only one of the sets of notes, one of the officer's notes mentioned it, other doesn't. So these cops are actually so fucking dreadful that they can't even do those basic work as detectives. And that's her defense of why this conviction was valid. I found that section. Uh, she said the, the detective notes constitute evidence that Syed wrote a letter to McLean and asked her to type it and include the address of the Baltimore Central Booking and Intake Center. Keep I in mind, not... they have a recorded interview with Juwan done after this. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, she goes into first, she says uh, one of the sign of possible fabrications is that uh, that Syed told his defense team on only two occasions that he had been at the library. Uh, a reasonable lawyer in Syed's trial counsel's position could have expected him to mention having been seen at the library more than two times. Uh, <laughs> That's all fear is nonsense. That's the name part of the record. Yeah, I wondered where she might have got that from. Uh, exactly. Uh, and at one point, she says, the notes do not allege that Syed ever told his defense team that he was, in fact, at the library, but only that Syed alleged that others had indicated that he'd seen him there. Well, if you say that somebody saw you there, you're saying you were there. Um, another sign, she says, is that uh, McLean and Banks uh, had seen him at the library at 3 p.m. But later on, she says that uh, it was between 2.15 and 3.15. Well, like, OK, one is specific. One is general. Uh, you know, there's no reason that that's necessarily a sign of possible fabrication. Uh, another one is um, a here we go that a member of Syed's defense team summarized meetings with him in August 21st, October 9th and January 15th. But Syed did not write anything about his whereabouts after 215 on those on those particular occasions. And that that for some reason means that this is a, a fabrication. Also, um, oh, and here's something actually I was curious if you guys could clear this up a little bit. She claimed that uh, two employees of Woodlawn High School had said that Syed frequently visited the school library as opposed to the public That's library. That's more theory. That was, a, yes. So uh, these were notes. Also, keep in mind, those notes were not things that were ever given over to Gutierrez. So actually, she could not have possibly factored them in her judgment. Well, yes, that was another thing uh, that uh, this judge provides no proof that uh, that Christina Gutierrez had access to this. Uh, She never even addresses how she would have known it. Yeah, Um, same with the Juwan notes, the ones that. So there is an actual Juwan interview that was recorded and she did have that. But the the rough hand notes of the two detectives that were interviewing Juwan that that Watts is talking about, that was not given over. Because if that had been given given over, well, then, uh, for instance, 
um, Becky's statement about the ride would have been given to the defense. Um, Coach Sai's statements would have been given to the defense. They never had that, which, you know, was Brady all on its own, but that's another day. And yeah. so here's the thing. Justice Watts, that, that she would have written that regardless. The question is, would it be a dissent or a concurrence? Unfortunately, it was concurrence. What matters is what the free majority found. And although Watts t- definitely takes it farther, it's not like that was in, not present in the actual opinion. Um, footnote 15, majority's decision, is the most heartbreaking part of that whole thing. And it's infuriating because it's the same it's the same craziness that, you know, that Watts is relying on. I mean, they have this whole section in footnote 15 when the majority says, McLean has offered various times for when she observed Mr. Saeed in the Woodlawn Public Library. And they have her say, for example, um, she wrote that she could help account for his unaccountable lost time, 2.15 to 8 o'clock. Actually, the letter says some of his unaccountable lost time, as in she could account for some of his lost time for the unaccountable time, which was... 2158. Not the part she could account for, just the lost time she's referencing. And then they go on to say that Miss McLean appears that she'd been in the library um, waiting for a ride at 2.20 p.m. and held a 15 to 20 minute conversation and left around 2.40. But then in another affidavit, she says she was there around 2.30 p.m. and they had a conversation and left around 2.40 p.m. Uh, yeah, so basically this judge or these judges are calling McLean, Adrian McLean, a liar because she was so specific in her notes, she wrote 2.20 and 2.30, about then. And because her estimate was 10 minutes different, that's evidence of her lying. And the basis of them concluding, um, her testimony may have been more problematic than helpful to Mr. Saeed's case. Yeah, and that was another thing, that they ignored Judge Welch's finding that the the state couldn't have it both ways, that their timeline required that the come and get me call be after the murder, unless you're calling somebody to come and get you before you intend on murdering somebody, which is, you know, that's nice foresight, uh, I suppose. Um, but I thought that was interesting uh, uh, at one point in uh, that she claimed that she didn't have to show deference to the other court. And I, I was under the impression she did. But uh, I'm, I, I guess I'm wrong. I mean, it's just the majority's opinion is not that different from what what's found. Um, they also like even talk about how Asia McLean's like her alibi would conflict with Mr. Saeed's routine up to attend traffic after school, but it doesn't conflict it at all. Also, the alibi by routine thing never actually really came into evidence. So how could Asian McLean have possibly con- contradicted it? I agree. Uh, I was just absolutely uh, mortified and mystified uh, by this. And I, again, I started thinking about the just the realities of, of what happened. Um, and Krista, actually, I, I know this is, a, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a bunch of legal jargon here, but I, I had just a practical question. Um, when school let out at 2.15, Right. Was there any possibility of of somebody getting to their car fast enough to get out of there with the kind of speed that would be necessary for this type of thing? I mean, it just feels like most high schools are just chaos afterwards and getting out of them is not a quick business. Um, So there it used to be a rush. Like you really had to be on the ball in order to get to the parking lot and get out of the parking lot before the lot locked down for buses. So the kids, like we had to park in the back of the school, whereas the teachers and the faculty parked in the front of the school. So if you didn't make it down to your car, I'd say within five minutes of that bell ringing and we, it's a big school. So it's not like it's just walking outside. If you're on the third floor and you need to get down to the parking lot, you're pretty much going to get locked in there till the buses are gone, which could be two thirty, two forty, 40 sometimes depending. Um, 
but it, it was a bit of a cluster and people, you know, when Sarah did her whole drive to try and figure out if it was possible or not, traffic patterns are very different now than they were back in 1999 too. There's different traffic lights. Um, so I don't think that it, it could have been possible unless for some reason someone left school early. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, uh, Hay had reason to rush because obviously she was intending to pick up uh, her cousin, I believe it was. But uh, my question also is, uh, obviously, the Best Buy is is fairly close by, but we're dealing with somebody who has to, uh, for me, the idea that you could get out at 215, get to a car, get all the way to the Best Buy parking lot, um, and then commit a murder, then find a, a pay phone to call somebody within 21 minutes that means the speed at which you commit murder is remarkable. Uh, you know, if if the idea was that he flew off the handle, well, it would have have to have been instantaneous. You know, there's no there's no buildup to that. Keep in mind, too, this person, whoever, if, if the things went down as the cops say they did, that call was only six seconds long, like including ring time. So uh, this conversation Jay describes was like at warp speed. So apparently this person is like superhuman. <laughs> and how fast they do things all around. Mm. I mean, another issue here, as devastating as the opinion was, like it, based on how the court did this, it is impossible not to have questions about their timing. And I, I think that it was a bad choice by them, flat out, regardless of anything else. It, it was a bad choice to release it the Friday before the documentary came out, um, because it is unavoidable that it looks intentional. It looks like they are making the decision based on the documentary. Um, or at least affecting their decision process on it, which is one, I mean, it's just a bad call, bad optics. And it looks like they were afraid of being accused of changing their opinion based on the documentary. So they rushed to get it in before the very last day they could without having the accusation linger over them. Well, yeah, it would make sense politically to do that. Um, well, no, the political thing, what they should have done is got their act together sooner and publish it in like February. Um, they presumably just couldn't get together in time, which is how courts operate. So it was now or never. They should have gone for like, well, it was now or after the documentary and they should have gone for the after. Well, I have to say I was surprised in the concurrence that it uh, contained so much detail and that she basically was being the state's advocate uh, in the concurrence. And actually, Colin, I had a question for you. So uh, there was that terrific article in Slate about uh, the fact that this now um, has Sixth Amendment implications because uh, because you're basically saying even though they were saying that Gutierrez was deficient, they were obviously downplaying the importance of an alibi to a terrifying extent uh, um, can you talk about that a little, Colin? Yeah, well, you know, after the Court of Special Appeals ruled in favor of Adnan, that case was actually cited by the Supreme Court of Connecticut in the Michael Skakel case, which is he's one of the Kennedys. And they cited Adnan's case, along with a number of other cases from across the country, to reach this conclusion, which is that we've never found a single case across the country in which a court has found deficient performance in failing to contact an alibi witness and yet lack of prejudice. Now, with this new ruling by the Court of Appeals in Maryland, we have effectively a state Supreme Court, the Maryland's Court of Appeals, finding you can have an attorney fail to contact an alibi witness, and yet that in certain circumstances might not be prejudicial. Is that going to lead to other courts finding the same thing? I certainly hope not, because... You know, this is the point made in the Slate article is the jury had the right to hear this evidence. They deserve to hear this alibi witness. 
And it's really tough to step in 20 years after the fact and have these justices saying, you know, we can determine that this wouldn't have made a difference. The whole point is an alibi witness. Sure, it can backfire in certain cases. And certainly the court recognizes that in this opinion. But I don't see how you can rule that in a way that's going to deny relief to a defendant when their attorney has been found deficient in failing to contact this witness who could completely exonerate you. And of course, most of these claims of, uh, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel are sort of based on the fiction that the attorney was only ineffective in one respect. When in reality, if an attorney is so ineffective, they can't even pick up the phone and call an alibi witness. They are dropping the ball in all kinds of ways, which exasperates the problem um, that much more. It's not just that Christina Gutierrez didn't talk to the alibi. It's that she also failed to do so many other things, which made the case stronger against Anon. So the fact that it was her ineffectiveness that led to both the, the weight that the court saw of the prosecution's case, as well as the failure to call the alibi in the first place. Well, and also it's a jury's job to evaluate a witness when they are actually presented with a witness, not, uh, you know, here we have a judge trying to, you know, in Judge Watts's case, trying to tear down, the, you know, and show how deficient that testimony may have been. But the bedrock principle is the jury has to decide that they're the ones who have to figure who, who have to weigh that, not the judge specifically. Plus, for the love of God, she's up against Jay Wilds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, my understanding was in the first trial, a lot of the jurors felt, even though Anon was going to be uh, acquitted, is that correct? They were not uh, unanimous in the first trial? It's no way to know. Yeah. You can't it's, tell, but they, the attorneys did talk to the jurors, and they were leaning in the favor of innocence, according to the attorneys reporting on it after that first mistrial. Got it. Um, so they didn't feel that Jay was a compelling witness, I guess? They did not. And that, that was that was an interesting shift from trial one to trial two. So trial one, the judge put limitations on how long the cross-examination of Jay could be. And comparatively, Gutierrez was quite effective and drove home certain points in undermining Jay's credibility. At trial two, the judge said, no time limitation. You can do whatever you want. Gutierrez ended up cross-examining Jay for several days, and it was much more muddled, and I think a lot of the effectiveness of the cross-examination was undercut by its lengthiness. That's why when you know you have a bad attorney, when the judge, like, blocking your attorney from doing something is to your benefit. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's kind of mind-blowing. Um, well, we have a bunch of uh, social media questions that I wanted to get to. Um, we got one from Carl Botger, uh, who says, uh, you floated the theory that there is a chance that this could still be a random person who committed the crime. There was no sexual assault. And would a random killer take time to bury the body? I mean, yes, that happens all the time. Like, that's, I mean... Ted Bundy buried victims. So yes, it, profilers will often say that uh, that it indicates somebody close, uh, you know, who somebody who people would know was a part of the crime uh, if they didn't hide the body. Whereas a serial killer could conceivably leave Google them at a bus stop. There are plenty of wanted. examples otherwise. Yeah, and also to clarify, we don't know there's no sexual assault. We also don't know that there was a burial because you know some of the evidence tends to indicate this might have just been something that was naturally there that she was dumped into and then covered as opposed to a hole actually being dug. That did not even occur to me. 
We've got one from Tamara Frankel, who says, uh, Episode 1 seemed to lay some idea that perhaps someone from Hayes' family made the anonymous call, or perhaps even killed her. Was this intentional? I hadn't considered that before, but her diary entry made it seem possible. I don't think that's what they were going for. Um, the part about Massey is interesting and shocking because, like, we never there's a question we never knew about, and now we kind of have an answer, whatever it's worth. Um I think it was more exploring how little we know about Hay, like from the case, like the investigation, no one's ever like looked into her life. And there's so much we don't know. It should have been explored back then. Never was. Yeah, I, I didn't get that impression from watching the show. I got the impression that at some point in, in her life she was abused. And, I, you know, that's a horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, but it just seemed like, uh, you know, a distant part of her life. It didn't seem like they were trying to bring it to bear in terms of, of this case. At least it didn't feel that way to me. Yeah. Uh, we have also got a question from uh, Allison Sweeney. I don't know if you if that name rings a bell for you guys. Um, somehow in the HBO documentary, it seemed that Massey was saying that uh, Baltimore PD knew back then that Don's alibi was his mom. But I thought that that was info that came out years later. If they knew in OO, uh, there was no excuse for not vetting it more thoroughly. It came out October 99, just before trial, well, before the original trial. Did he testify in the original trial? So what happened was uh, Gutierrez did send a subpoena out for his work records, and that's how they found out. Well, they only found out because the, the paralegal at Lenscrafters Corporate took the time to write the cover letter that you saw on the screen. Oh, yes. That seemed kind of alarmed. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like in bold. By the way, this was Don's mob. Just just putting it out there for no reason. Just, just FYI. <laughs> Yes, we've got a sleuth in the uh, legal department at LensCrafters, thankfully. Yes, well, then absolutely, Allison, you're absolutely right. No excuse for not vetting it more thoroughly. Um, and do we have any idea to what degree that Baltimore PD actually did vet it? They didn't. They talked to one woman at LensCrafters who turned out to be Don's stepmom. So they never knew that back then. Yes, I think that that is probably the thing that uh, lodged in Allison's mind more recently because uh, that was the the thing that made my head explode at the time. Don originally worked for one one Lenscrafters Hunt Valley, um, where he worked for his mom as the manager. Then he moved in October of '98 to the Owings Mill store, where very shortly after Hay started working, there his manager was his mother's partner, so his stepmom. But the police didn't know that. Is yeah, does not seem like they knew that. Yes, and and it's it was not Lenscrafters knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's apparently uh, you know serious conflict of interest issues there, having uh, you know your boss be your mom's girlfriend. But uh, my understanding was at the time that uh, it was in fact the stepmother who who presented the time card. Um, there was no time the... card. They talked to her. Apparently, could have been on the phone. We're not clear. They just called mm -hmm. it while while still missing person's case. Um, I believe it was the February. First, I believe around then they called up the uh, lens crafters, spoke to the manager there, and she was at the Owings Mills one, so not the one where Don was the day of the murder. Um, and presumably, she had access to a system where she could look up Don's hours at the other store, and she read them off on the phone. Got it. And so the time card wasn't produced till way later, because I feel like right. that's where you discovered that the employee number was different. Yeah, that that's where when we got the time cards for both the Owings Mills and the Hunt Valley stores. Got it. So the stepmother was the person who actually conveyed uh, who conveyed the alibi to the police at that yeah. time. Got it. OK. I'm understandably confused. Um, OK. Uh, we've got another question from Amy Marie who says, hi, I watched the first HBO episode last night and Hayes' friend said she saw her leave that day, happy to go get her cousin and see Don. But wasn't it well documented and undisclosed that no one knew where she was going that day? Well, we knew she's going to get her cousin, presumably, but we didn't know. I mean, she, we know she had work. She has a shift at LensCrafters scheduled. 
So it's kind of unclear why everyone started believing she was going to be working at a wrestling match that evening. Yeah, there's there's sort of this conflict where Debbie, in her original police statement back in January, says, I saw Hay at around 3 p.m. and she was going to see Don, her boyfriend. Whereas there's the statement that Becky makes, which is that right after school ends, she saw Hay and Hay said she had to leave right away. Something had come up and she had to be somewhere. And Krista, I think, right, you said that that night when Aisha called you, she had conveyed something similar, right? Right. Um, when I talked to Aisha and she said that, that her brother had called and that Hay was missing, and I said, oh, okay, well, Adnan and her talked during first period, and she was supposed to give him a ride. Has anyone talked to him? And Aisha said, oh, no, in last period or at the end of the day, I heard her tell him, no, I can't give you a ride. And he said, okay, no big deal. Yeah, and Becky heard that too. And from her police, again, those words stuff, interview notes are not ever handed over to the defense. And she says she heard Hay say, um, oh, I'm sorry, I got something else to do. And I, I tend to think that Debbie has the wrong day. And that, you know, obviously with Aisha, obviously having talked to Krista that night and, and Becky corroborating it, I tend to, to believe their story that in fact, Hay did communicate that something had come up and left shortly after school as opposed to still being at school at three o'clock. But that's just my guess. To me, always the, the 236 call to Jay, uh, to me, always made sense because Adnan needed a ride. <laughs> you know, he didn't have his car. You know, if he did want to do something before track practice, that would make sense. It would, in fact, be a come and get me call. It just uh, he didn't happen to just murder somebody. Am I nuts? I, I could be nuts. That's logical. They never check I mean, any uh, phone records that way, so we don't know. Yeah. Also, but but that actually would have probably been a longer than six second call. So that's where my my theory falls apart. Unless Jay is like picks up and hangs up again, is like, sorry, bro, I was busy, didn't get your call. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no thanks. I don't think it's that unrealistic actually, because it it does take usually fifteen to twenty minutes for the parking lot to clear out after school. So if the bell rang at two fifteen and the buses leave at two twenty five, you're not really getting into the parking lot. So it makes sense for Adnan to call him after the bus loop was clear, if that was in fact the case. And was there a phone booth where somebody could make a, a call like that? Yes, it was um, trying to think because it's been a while since I've seen a, seen a payphone, but I know there was at least one payphone in the lobby of his, of the school. Yeah, and we can't prove that there was ever a payphone at uh, the Best Buy. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> Laura swears there's not. I'll go by her her <laughs> opinion. Okay. Uh, oh, and there was one little factoid that I, again, I uh, it was in the the court opinion, but it was in the concurrence. So again, I have no idea if it's accurate or not, or if it was something that Thero said. But they said that Adnan and Hay often would go to the Best Buy parking lot to, uh, I guess, be intimate. And I was like, I don't remember that. Uh, was that they that, had done that? so? That was oh, okay. yeah. That was not only often's right word for it, that was a place it had gone. Mm-hmm. And I, do you think that that may have been what inserted it in the minds of police as the possible? Like, well, let's yeah. Say- I mean, they have Debbie who's being like, she's the questions from Hope Shop are like, where did Hay and Anon go to be intimate? And so they were obviously asking students this question and one of them probably heard from Hay. So they probably already had the answer. I had another question. Kiki who asks, did the miniseries have access to all the tapes of the phone calls? So even tapes not used in serial? Uh, Something Sunday uh, sounded new to me, but then again, it's been a few months. So, so was that new audio that they oh, got yeah. about them? Yeah. This is mm-hmm. different production. They didn't have serial audio. This was calls that, like for with Anon, it was calls that he'd had with Amy. Um, in different interviews, this was not the serial. Obviously, they wouldn't, serial wouldn't give over their work and research um, to another production. 
Uh, we've got one from Noor who says, uh, did you look into if Jay and Don knew each other somehow? Yeah, no, there's no evidence whatsoever that they were ever connected. Okay. I mean, it's Baltimore, so sometimes you're really shocked by the connections people have, but like, I'd be very, very shocked in this case. Yes, it's possible that Don may have purchased pot from uh, somebody who may have been Jay. Even for Baltimore standards, I'd be really surprised. If he was working in Owings Mills, he would not have drove yeah. all the way to Jay to buy pot. There's plenty of places <laughs> in between. <laughs> this one comes from Jen. Uh, the question is, uh, is Alonzo Sellers known to any of the Woodlawn High School kids? He seems like a stranger in the case, but he has a weird connection having found the body. So if he didn't stumble upon her, who would he have known to find out where Hay was? should clarify that Alonzo, Mr. S from Sierra, Alonzo Sellers is his real name. He's much older than, um, I think he was born in the 50s. Don't quote me on that. But he's, he's much older than all the Woodlawn students. They would not be like socially hanging out. Um, but he did live in the area for a long time and grew up there and had younger relatives. So it's not inconceivable that there was connections between him and people at Woodlawn. I mean, there probably were just given the proximity, but I don't think there's anything significant necessarily, or, uh, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't think of, there definitely were connections. Like he, I, I know he had family members who were connected to Woodlawn, but I don't think there's any evidence or any information that we've talked about that was just, that was relevant here. Yeah, Krista, I guess you being having been one yeah, of the did students. Did you know Mr. S? Did you ever see him running around town? <laughs> well, he used to run around naked in front of all of us. <laughs> that was just his thing. So I was reading. I never saw him. <laughs> the buddy man. I was reading through some uh, Mr. S files today, and I'm looking at the note that one officer wrote in like one of his court filings, and it says, "quote like this naked man problem has been going on for some years now." <laughs> <laughs> Naked Man Problem is the name of my band, by the way. Uh, <laughs> okay, here's one from Justine Barron, who actually participated in the Freddie Gray uh, season of Undisclosed. Um, and she asks, I'd like to hear a discussion uh, about if Alonzo Sellers was possibly a CI. I'm guessing that's confidential informant, considering his discovery of Hayes' body being so questionable. Uh, reminds me of how BPD used Donta Allen in the Freddie Gray case. Um, does that seem possible? going to go with extremely unlikely. I mean, it's not something you say categorically didn't happen, but I have not seen any evidence of that, at least not like a regular CI. I mean, he was a problem for them. So, I mean, he was like an aggressive <laughs> streaker who would like, you know, made threatening gestures at a, an officer. So, eh, I, I don't see in this case, particular situation. I mean, it's not like they're going to be like, oh, keep streaking freely. Just give them information about what you know. They wanted him to stop streaking. Uh, and we got one last question from Paul Hollis. And it's interesting that you brought up the Watkins case earlier. Um, what's the status of Watkins case? Are there plans for more publicity? It seems to have more exculpatory evidence than Anand's case and appears exoneration is imminent. Uh, an exoneration due to UD, I'm guessing that's undisclosed, um, could help Adnan. I don't. I mean, Joey's still waiting. I, we thought that Supreme Court of Georgia would come back sooner. They haven't. Who knows when they'll actually release their decision. And then either that's the end of this current round of appeals, or if we win, we go back to the trial court and again, proceed on the you know PCR equivalent here. Have you talked to Joey uh, at all recently? I did. I actually, um, when about 15 minutes after the decision came out in Anand's case, um, he called and I almost didn't answer because I was like a little bit crying. And but you never know like when they can call. So like I, I hate to miss a chance, of, you know, because they can always call back right away. So I answered, and obviously my plan of like pretending I was not crying didn't work very well. And 
you know, it was a, it was a probably as a change from usual because he was the one trying to reassure me that it was all going to be fine and that you know that Anon would he he was sure Anon would be he he's used to this he knows how it goes I mean it's going to be terrible for everyone around him and for him too but I mean this has been this for Anon like for Joey this is usually how things go like it's more often that they have bad news and it's been very rare in their journeys that had good news so they're they're somewhat more probably better prepared than we are for it. Yeah, I remember Joey uh, uh, saying something to that effect that basically, you know, he had no reasonable expectation of these things going right. So that was where he lived. And Krista, I, I know that you've stayed in some communication with Adnan. Um, do you remember when the last time you spoke with him was? Uh, so I actually spoke with him. It, it has been um, quite a while. We corresponded back and forth for years. And uh, the only issue became when the PCR process started, uh, I think Justin kind of advised him that maybe it would be better if he stopped writing me because I was potentially a witness if it went to retrial. Um, so he, he was able to kind of send me one one letter that said I had to give Justin's permission to write this. And he gave me an update on just, you know, how his family was and that sort of thing. So he doesn't get to really communicate with me anymore. But I told him that I would continue to keep him updated on my life. So I write him every couple of months, you know, send him pictures of my kids, let him know what's going on, just so that he knows that he's not completely forgotten. Yeah, I wondered if he had uh, bought into this emotionally, because I think all of us were very, very hopeful about this particular uh, decision. Uh, I know something that was particularly heartbreaking for me listening to this last episode of Undisclosed was hearing the difference in Rabia's voice after she had heard the ruling. And then, you know, the the rest of the podcast was clearly before she had heard the ruling and her her voice just sounded uh, much more hopeful. And, uh, you know, that was uh, very touching to me. I wanted to thank you, Krista, for being here. We appreciate so much that you made the time. If you want to ever come back, we would we would love to have you. Uh, you know, I'm very much looking forward to the rest of the documentary. You guys have all seen it. I have not. Um, so I'm, I'm learning new stuff every week. And for me, actually, I'm incredibly grateful just to see everybody's faces and finally know these people because, you know, they've always been names. And to see the actual layout of Woodlawn and, you know, see the actual Best Buy and see where those things are is uh, fascinating to me. It's never how I expected. It's never how I expected the, these things to look. You know, but that just goes to how my brain pictures things, I guess. <laughs> um, I say, at least in my opinion, the episode just keep getting better from here. They definitely do. I think everybody kind of needs to buckle their seatbelt because it's going to get more interesting. Okay. Well, thank you guys. Uh, and I, I guess that's all we've got. And that's it for this first addendum. Uh, but I want to remind everyone that the Adnan Syed Legal Defense Fund has been relaunched. I just donated at launchgood.com slash freeadnan. And you can, too, if you are so inclined. Uh, any amount helps. $5, $10, anything. We are so grateful for all the support that our listeners have given us in the past. We also have a, a special event to announce. On March 31st, that's a Sunday, we will be holding a watch party for the HBO uh, documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed, but it's for the special final episode, the fourth episode. It'll be at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and it is a free event. Um, so all you have to do is go to Eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E, 
and sign up for that. Um, but you do have to sign up ahead of time. And there'll be a panel discussion with uh, Rabia, Susan, uh, Saad Chowdhury, uh, and Justin Brown. And that's an event that actually I would like to be at. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if you could just go there in my stead, because I'm still in Los Angeles, uh, I would really appreciate it. Also, Adnan's story, uh, the wonderful book that Rabia Chowdhury uh, wrote about the case, is available in paperback with a new foreword by Rabia that uh, brings you up to date on the case. Also, uh, the Undisclosed Patreon is still going strong. It is at patreon.com slash undisclosedpod, and there you'll find bonus episodes uh, with Susan, Rabia, and Colin uh, if you choose to sign up. If you feel like checking out our website, it is undisclosed-podcast.com. There's a list of all the criminal justice-related charities that you can make a donation to. Uh, I am donating all of my fees for these special episodes to the Adnan Syed Legal Defense Trust. So there. You can follow Undisclosed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at their handle at UndisclosedBod and send any questions with the hashtag UDAddendum. I want to thank Hannah McCarthy for audio production, Patrick Cortez, who composed our addenda theme, and last but in no way least, Mithil Telhan, our project manager. Uh, and also, once again, I'm going to thank our listeners. Thank you for going on this journey. It's taking a lot longer than I think a lot of us uh, thought it would, but uh, we're staying the course. And I, too, uh, am excited about the, uh, the rest of the series. 